It was awesome. My name is Eric. I want to welcome you to, to E3. I hope you guys are having a, a great day. It is beautiful, um, warm. Well, I guess I don't know if it's beautiful or not, but it certainly is warm. Um, this is the first Sunday of a series that we're going to do for the entire series of Lent. We've been talking about Lent for a few weeks now, but it is the 40 or so days that lead up to Easter it's traditionally a time where, as the video was saying, God's people set aside some time to reflect on their lives. And we do that typically by engaging in some practices that challenge us. Again, the video mentioned things like fasting and pulling back from things that we do habitually. Uh, and when we do that, if you're anything like me, what tends to happen is when you don't engage in the habits that you always engage in, when you don't eat the things you always eat, when you don't watch the things you always watch, sometimes what happens is that cracks uh, begin to become exposed in our life. And what I mean by that is that God sometimes reveals things when we wake up that aren't so pleasant about our lives, little areas of our lives where we have to take stock and we do this uh, to prepare for Easter, because Easter is a great celebration. But leading up to that time, uh, it has historically been appropriate for God's people to look at their lives and examine it and just say, what's going on in my life? Where, where do I need to bring God's light to bear in my life? Because none of us are perfect, uh, but we're on this journey to try and become transformed into the people that God wants us to be. So we're going to be spending the next five or six weeks in the garden. And what I mean by that is that we are going to be taking a look at the prayer that Jesus prayed the night that he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. It's seven words in most translations. Actually, in the New Living, it's a little bit different. But Traditionally, most of us may have grown up in church hearing the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And as the video said, I think this is one of the most profound prayers that we can pray. And God laid this series or something like it on me months ago, just started stirring up of what, do we just, what if we just looked at this one scene in Jesus's life and this one prayer, because I actually believe the garden was probably the most important part of his ministry. And we will get to that. I'll make my case for it soon enough. But we always look at the cross and we look at his uh, teachings. But I actually think that everything hinged on the garden. In this one night. And then God kind of said, uh, you should take a look at this series in a particular way. I'm a, a fan of movies. I'm a fan of most artistic media, uh, but not just of movies. I, uh, I like to find out the way art is done. And so I'm a fan of like the process of making movies. I'm not a movie maker. Uh, I just have a natural curiosity about like, how do artists, including visual artists, including movie makers, including musicians, how do they actually make and produce their art? And uh, I'll just find myself reading books or, or you know, something on the web about them. And I got to thinking, uh, what if we looked at this series 
like a movie. You know, some of my favorite movies are movies that start off with, with a scene and then they flash back. You know, movies like Fight Club that starts off and you're kind of like there's this intense scene or a movie like Memento that actually goes in reverse and forwards at the same time, don't ask me. Or a movie like The Godfather where flashbacks tell the story. And so what I thought we would do with this series is that we're gonna actually start off today in the garden with Jesus. But then over the next five weeks, what we're gonna do is flash back to his life. Because one of the things I would like to put inside your mind, a thought that I would like to plant inside your mind, is that not my will, that prayer, does not just happen. We don't just drift into praying, not my will. As a friend of mine once said, we don't drift into righteousness. Certain things in Jesus' life led up to this garden. And what I wanna do is after today is rewind and look at significant events in Jesus' life that I believe produced what he did, the decision he made the night that he was arrested. We're just gonna ask the question, how did we get here? How do we get into this garden with Jesus and how is he able to pray the most radical prayer I think that he ever prayed? Not my will, but yours be done. Now, just so you know, a couple other things started happening as I was thinking about this series, in particular as I was thinking about today. And I was sitting in here and listening to uh, messages the way you guys were. I was attending Illuminate uh, with John Bickley. And all of a sudden, all of the things that I was hearing on Sundays and, and on, when, and on um, Wednesday night and some other thoughts, they all just seemed to kind of start connecting. And so actually what we're going to do today is we're actually going to be taking a look at scriptures that we've taken a look at in the previous weeks. But I want to look at them from a different angle than what we looked at them with toxin. Not radically different, just with a different perspective. Uh, just because this is what God was stirring up in my heart as I'd lived my life in the community. Same thing as you guys uh, lived. And what's really cool, what's really uh, kind of meta for me is that you know, Jesus goes into Gethsemane right after what? Sunday school class here, right after what? The Lord's Supper, right? Well, what did we do last week? The Lord's Supper. And so just like Jesus walked into the garden after he took uh, the Lord's Supper, after he initiated the Lord's Supper with his disciples, we're gonna walk into the garden just like, just like Jesus did. And then at the end of this journey, I think Thursday night of Holy Week, we're gonna come back to the table. Mark's gonna lead us in a Passover Seder. So this series is gonna come full circle. We're gonna start in the garden. We're gonna flash back to Jesus's life. And we're gonna come back to the garden Thursday night of Holy Week. Then we're gonna go to the cross on Friday night of Holy Week and then Easter Sunday. So I hope you stay engaged with this journey. Uh, I... I have a feeling in my life that maybe God wants to just really, really rip some things open in me. So if nothing else, this sermon series will be for me and you'll just get to watch me become undone on stage. 
But we're going to start today, and, and I want to tell you, today is, uh, there's going to be a lot of scripture coming at you, a lot of scripture. And this is primarily because I'm a person of context. Uh, this drives, I'm sure it drives Mark and Lori and Dan crazy, but I'm not the type of person that can just look at a story in isolation. I'm always asking, okay, well, what's, what's going before this and what's coming after this? Mark will give me a task to do, and I'm, and I'm like, I can't do this task because I need to know where does this fit into the universe of E3? And I'm sure he just rolls his eyes and goes, oh my gosh, Eric, just figure it out. We're going to take a look at context today of the garden. And it's the grandest context you can possibly imagine. We are going to go from literally the very first pages of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible with a few stops in between. So if you have your Bible... I would invite you to open it to Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning. And the scripture will, as usual, be on the screens, and there's some scripture in your fridge folds as well. So we're going to take a look at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 first. Okay, this is just after uh, the first creation story. There's actually two creation stories in in the book of Genesis. They're kind of different perspectives on the same event. The first one is grand. You know, God speaks. Bam, light, God speaks, sea, earth, animals, just, it's epic, it's huge. Then in chapter two, beginning in verse eight, we read this. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. And in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this part of the creation story is a contrast with the first part of the creation story. Like I said, it's epic. In Genesis 1, we have God just creating whole, literally a whole world out of nothing. And it's immense. And then chapter two, we get introduced to something called human scale, which is a term that architects use that just say that human scale is when a building or an environment has the right relationship to a human being. And they will tell you that when something is human scale, we feel at home in it. We feel comfortable in it. And so God goes from creating an entire world to making a garden where we can live and where we can feel at home. It's not just about this immense world. It's about something that his creation, his icons, his image bearers can feel at home in. And not only that, we're told what? That there's trees in the garden and they're beautiful and they produce delicious fruit. So not only do we feel comfortable, God says, here, obviously, here's enough for you to eat. Here's trees in the garden. I'm taking care of you. I will care for you. But significantly, at least for people like me, he says, guess what? Here's some beauty. It's not just enough to have food. God says, my world needs beauty in it. And I will put it in there from the beginning. So here, humanity, sit in my garden. Eat these trees 
and soak in this beauty. And that's where we're at in the story. And then a little bit lower, uh, in verse 15, we're told again, the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But, and if you've been around church for a while, you know this is a pretty big but, the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, I'm not one to fault God's parenting skills, but I do have two children. And if you are a parent, you know that the worst thing you could probably do to a child is say, hey, you can do anything, but see that thing over there? You can't do that thing. Because what do our kids do? They go, you mean that thing over there? Yeah, don't touch that. And the kids are like, that thing? You're like, dad, don't touch it. And then what happens the moment you turn your back? Like, what are you doing? Well, so what's cool about this passage to me is that we have to remember like who God is, first of all. Again, he just created an entire universe. He created this garden. But then what does he do after he puts man in it? He says what? I want you to do two things. Tend it and watch over it. Now, does God need us to do this? No. He made it. He made everything. And what I fail to recognize somehow, sometimes, is that when God does this, he is making space for humanity. He is saying, I don't need you to make this garden, but I will make room for you in my creation. You tend it. You watch it. God limits himself so that his creation can experience the world in a special way. But, he says, there are limits to what you can do in this space. I did a lot of investigating uh, this week, a lot of study on the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you notice, if you remember from the first passage, how many trees are there actually that he points out? It's actually two, okay? And if you really uh, get into study about this, scholars would say, you know, we don't, there's a lot of different perspectives of what these two trees represent. Go all over the, all over the, the gamut of, of approaches to this scripture. But I like what one scholar said. He said, here's the deal. Don't worry so much about what the trees are or aren't. Focus on the fact that God said not to eat of it. The point is the command. The point is God said, you can't do everything. And I would say it this way. We can't do everything because we shouldn't. 
Like one of the big thoughts around today's message that I would just like to kind of give to you is that we are ill-equipped to be God. And part of the garden is God saying, guess what, humanity? You are ill-equipped to be God. There is a limit to your ability. So there's a tree there. Don't ask about it. I don't need to explain myself. Just don't eat it. But God makes space. And when you make space, you risk, don't you? When you say, I will allow you to, ex to exercise a little freedom, there is a risk that that freedom will be used in a way that you didn't intend. And so we get these familiar verses in chapter three. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. So why did he make them? I don't know. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The woman said, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. Did God say anything about touching the fruit? No. So maybe that's the first mistake. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, right? And maybe this, maybe this is like a key moment, because what did she just tell the serpent? If you touch it, you will. But she touches it, and does she die? probably figures, well, if that didn't happen, maybe the other thing won't happen either. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And there it all happens, right? Now, um, I don't want to dwell too much in this because, again, we went over some of this in Toxin, uh, and also this, this message uh, is not just about the garden. But I would suggest to you that there are two issues going on here. God gave them a garden that had everything they needed in it. Trees that were beautiful and produced good fruit. And so in a way, you could look at Eve, and historically, most people say, humanity's sin was a sin of pride. They wanted to be like God. They wanted their eyes to be open. They wanted the wisdom that the fruit would give her. So she took it and needed it. But, but the other sin or, or, or mistake that is operating here is also one of mistrust. God said, I've given you a garden with everything in it. And in that one moment, it is almost as if humanity said, I don't trust that this is everything we need. I don't trust that this fruit, if I eat it every day, will take care of me. So they take it. And then, just one last passage in Genesis. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. This is after everything has happened. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out Take fruit from the tree of life. So here's the second tree. And eat it. Then they'll live 
forever. And so God kicks humanity out of Eden. And we've been trying to get back ever since. Still haven't made it. So there's still a tree of life there. But God says you can't come back anymore. Now we're going to fast forward all the way to the end of the the Bible, and these are where some verses that came up uh, for us in Illuminate when we were, I was taking the class with, with John Bickley, and uh, we read these verses. So this is the image at the end of time. This is the, the goal that God is moving forward, towards. Revelation 21, chapter, uh, verse 10. So he took me, this is John, the, 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 the revelator, as some blues guys call him. John the Revelator wrote this book. He took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And then down a little bit below that in verse 22, he also sees this. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is its what? Light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day because there's no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Those are great, great verses. I love them. John is not just being shown this for the first time. There's actually a similar image that God gives a prophet in the Old Testament. So we're going to go to Isaiah 60 for a second. So listen to how similar these images are. Isaiah is writing before Jesus exists, and God says to this, Arise, Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness is black as night, covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. Listen, here it is. All nations will come to your light. Or we just read in Revelation, Everyone, the nations are going to come to the city of Jerusalem. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. For merchants from around the world will come to you and they will bring you the wealth of many lands. Does this sound like what we just read in Revelation? It does. And then it ends this way, uh, Isaiah 60, verse 19. No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, for, nor the moon to give its light by night. For who? The Lord your God will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set. Your moon will not go down. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will come to an end. So God's given this vision before in the Old Testament. 
And when John writes it down, I believe he's, he's pulling together both what God is showing him and telling him about where things are going, but also he's pulling together what he knows about what God has always promised. Someday there's gonna be a city. And cities are cool places. We're gonna go from a garden to a city. And cities are different from gardens. They have a different structure, a different uh, makeup than a city. Has anybody ever lived in like a great city? Something like New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco. Uh, you know, I don't have to tell you that we lived in Chicago for a while. Cities are different beasts. And let me tell you, they look like this picture of Revelation when they're working right. They are cities of, they are centers of commerce. They are centers of activity. They are centers of culture. Things happen in cities. They are diverse. And God says, I started things off in this garden where things are simple but good and it's a sanctuary and there's enough. But God says, that's not the whole story. Eventually, this garden is going to turn into a city where things are gonna be happening. Heaven is not going to be boring. You're gonna have stuff to do and it will not ever sleep. Thank you, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and then check this out. I want to, and this last thing about this vision of this heavenly city of Jerusalem. I'm not boring you, am I? Am I boring you? No, all right. So check out Revelation 22. Mm, this is good. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The, the, the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nation. Now, you know what's interesting about that verse? Okay, you gotta know that biblical translation is sometimes as much of an art as it is a science. When you take ancient languages and you bring them into modern languages, sometimes it's not clear what decision you have to make. So the New Living translates this verse in a particular way, and there is one little article that is different if you were to pick up, say, the New International Version or a different version. And the article happens in verse two because New Living says there's a river flowing and on either side of the river, there is a tree of life. But you know what different translations say? They say there's a river flowing and on either side of the river is the tree of life. Remember that tree of life? Remember that tree of life from Genesis 3 that God said, hey, we don't want them eating from this thing. They might become just like us, so wall off Eden and get humanity out. God says, guess what, at the end, we're not just gonna have a city with all of this beauty and all of these amazing things to do. Guess what, we're bringing some of the garden back too. And guess what, the barriers are down. You want the tree of life? have the tree of life. In fact, guess what? The tree of life is no longer off limits. It's medicine now. What's the text say? To heal 
the nations. Can I get an amen? Is this good news? But here's the deal. To get from garden to city, we have to go through a different garden. We have to go through the garden that Jesus went through. We don't just go from Eden to Jerusalem without going through Gethsemane, okay? So, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, for this series, we're probably going to start with Mark for all of these stories, and sometimes we'll stay there, sometimes we'll look at different Gospels. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 32. The text says, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply disturbed and troubled and distressed. And he told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. You spoke a world into being. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say. Ah, I guess so. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Oh, Lord. So a couple things. Every gospel has this story in it. Every gospel has the garden in it. If you're new to, to following Jesus, if you're new to this Bible, understand that not every story about Jesus is found in every gospels, in every gospel. The different writers had different agendas, different focuses, different communities. Some stories get left out. Let me tell you, when you read this thing, when you find a story that's in all four gospels, you should sit up and take notice. Matthew and Mark's version are nearly identical. Luke's is slightly different. John doesn't have this particular story, but John assumes the garden through multiple chapters at the end of his gospel. This is an important story. Now, I don't, know, I don't know what your view, what your image is of Jesus. Uh, 
I've tried to know this man for years. And let me tell you, if you have an image of Jesus that walks around like a stoic, unemotional robot, then you haven't read this close enough. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. Don't pretend those words don't mean what they mean. The Greek word means he was terrified. And think about the effect that this would have had on the three. Peter, James, and John, they have seen Jesus face down Pharisees. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him face down crowds that wanted to stone him and never did they see this. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. So what does he do? He turns to his father. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. The sounds, uh, if, you, if you have ears to hear, and if you're familiar with the story, you know what this sounds like. This is a miniature version, a condensed version, a version of crisis of the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray earlier in his ministry. Anybody know that prayer? Our Father who lives in heaven, hallowed be our name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then he gets to the end. Do not lead us into the times of trial, but deliver us from evil. All the elements are there. Father in heaven, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me. Do not let me be led into the temptation or the times of trial. Deliver me from evil. But Lord, let your will be done, not mine. And we're gonna be taking a look at prayer in Jesus's life later. But today, all you need to know is that in this moment where Jesus prays the prayer he taught his disciples to pray, God says no. And have you ever been told no by God? If so, then you've walked in Jesus' footsteps. And get this, again, Jesus has faced crowds. He's faced the religious leaders before. And every time he walked off scot-free, and I can imagine, this is just me, I can imagine him praying this prayer earlier in his ministry. God, is it time? Is it time? And God says, no, it's, it's not time, Jesus. No, you don't have to drink this cup of suffering yet. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm out of here. But this time, Jesus has come to Jerusalem at Passover. Everything is lining up. And in a moment of terror, he prays. And his father says, it's time.
and just briefly contrast that with the first garden, right? Because after Jesus prays that prayer, three times he asks God, three times. But then what does he end up with? He stands up, he says, look, here comes my betrayer. It's time. You ever think Jesus didn't have courage? So in the first garden, the serpent speaking to humankind, to Eve, and there's a sense of pride. I can become like God. There's a sense of mistrust. I don't trust that God has given me enough. But in this garden, this Jesus, this Messiah says what? Not my will, not pride, but yours be done. I trust my Father. It may terrify me. My soul might be crushed, but I trust him. Let's get up and go meet this betrayer and get on with it. So each week, I want to just maybe share some of the questions that I wrestle with um, from this story or from Jesus' life. And the first question is really simply this. Why should I pray this prayer? Is this just a prayer for Jesus or is it for me too? Because I want to be honest, I hope it's just a prayer for Jesus. Because praying not my will is not fun. Because every once in a while, God says, yeah, you're right, not your will. Should I pray this prayer? Uh, I was thinking about this, and I would just say it uh, this way. I, I stumbled across, well, I didn't stumble across. This is one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. I'm gonna put it up on the screen right here. C.S. Lewis says this, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Everything hinges on this prayer. Everything. Ultimately, if you don't pray this prayer at some point in your life, you know what you do? You become God. And we are not equipped to be God. God is equipped to be God. And let me just draw this out by, by looking at something that, that Pastor Mark taught on uh, last week. Just real quick. Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Boy, Romans is like Mount Everest of the Bible. I gotta tell you, you do not walk into Romans without some kind of like safety line. You may not get out again. <laughs> Romans chapter eight, Mark, uh, Pastor Mark taught on this so brilliantly and I just wanna bring a, 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 a circle back around to it. He says in verse five, Paul writes, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. 
For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Now, a quick little lesson in Greek. Sinful nature, there, the word is uh, flesh. The Greek word is sarx. Let me hear you say sarx. That's the way it's spelled. S-A-R-X. That's the English equivalent. In the Bible, it really just means your body. Okay? In one sense. The, the, the verse when Jesus says the two, when we talk about marriage, the two will become one flesh, he says it's one body, one sarts, one physical body. Paul comes along and explodes that definition. So it doesn't just mean your physical body, it means the way we behave in and of ourselves. And I would suggest to you that that sarks, Body, flesh, sinful nature is a pretty laden term, but if you just focus on like in my flesh, in my natural state of being, that's a lot like my will. My flesh has a lot to do with my will, what I want out of my life. So should I pray this prayer for me, for Eric? Oh yeah, because my flesh my tendencies, my inclinations will not dovetail with God's in and of themselves. Anybody else have the same problem? So the second question that I was thinking about for today is... Uh, is really just a question of what would it mean to say, not my will in the area of, and I want to just fill in the blanks. What would it mean for me to say, not my will, God, but yours be done in the area of my finances, in the area of my vocation? In the area of my sexuality. In the area of, you fill in the blank. What is that thing that you are terrified of giving up? What is the area of your life that if God said, let me take this from you, you would fall on your knees and say, my soul is crushed to the point of death. That's a terrifying prayer to pray wherever that is in your life. But it's the prayer that is the key to everything because it unleashes a freedom and a grace and a forgiveness that you can't even begin to imagine because we are ill-equipped to be God's. But praise God, there is one who is equipped. Let's stand for closing prayer.